0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode eight. Today we're asking the question, do risk matrices help us make better decisions? Let's get started. everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? David,
1: our question for this episode is, Do risk matrices help us make better decisions? This is our first listener question, which comes from David from Canada, who asked where modern methods of risk assessment came from and how scientific they are. Now, how scientific risk assessment is is a really big question, too big to answer in this one episode. But David also asked specifically about one risk assessment practice, the risk matrix. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So a bit of background. In early insurance and decision science, there was this thing called a risk matrix, which was a genuine mathematical matrix that you could use for calculations about expected values. And their basic use was you put in frequency and likelihood, and you could use them to work out how much an insurance product was worth when it packaged up various risks and various premiums. What we call a risk matrix today is a sort of bastard descendant of those mathematical tools. It's a table usually a three by three, four by four, or five by five table. It's got severity of consequences along one side and likelihood of outcome along the other. And the cells in the table are usually colored. typical colors are we color some green, some yellow, and some red to represent low risk, medium risk, and high risk. And the general idea is that you start with a list of risks or hazards. Then you place each one onto the table by estimating its severity and likelihood And that then provides an indication of the priority of the risks. Now, sometimes people will say directly that the reason we do this is as a decision tool. Sometimes people say that it's not a decision tool, it's a communication tool. But my thinking is that people communicate for a reason, and that reason is usually to get a decision made, even if it's just an endorsement of what's already been decided. So in either case, the assumption is that we use risk matrices because they help us in some way to make decisions. We used to make decisions without matrices, Today, lots of decisions are made using risk matrices. And it's getting to the point where risk matrices are explicitly required by standards and in some place even by regulations or legislation. So the question we want to ask today is, do risk matrices help us make better decisions? So before we get into the paper today, David, your thoughts on whether this is the right question to ask?
0: Well, Drew, before I answer that question, maybe... Um I had one goal for today's podcast, which was try not to look like a fool because you have done so much research and, and writing in in the space of risk assessment. So my answer to that question, though, about, about risk matrices is that I think we, we think of them in a positivist kind of way, which is we are trying to understand a true value of risk and use that to make very rational or logical or objective decisions about where we should allocate resources and what we should do. My experience, as we talk through the podcast, is probably going to be. I think. I think risk matrices serve potentially more of a social purpose in organisations to actually help people talk about risk, as opposed to actually landing on what is the true risk. Um, but ultimately, in any case, whether matrices are estimating the right level of risk or whether they're helping talk about it, at the end of the day, it's all about making decisions. So I think. I think you've you've chosen probably the most central question for risk matrices.
1: Yeah, I have to admit that. When we talk about risk assessment, people often adopt fallback positions. They start off with this very positive approach and they say, oh, we use risk matrices to help us make decisions. And when you point out problems with that, they say, oh, we don't really use them to make decisions, we use them to help us make decisions, amongst many other factors. And then when you point out the problems with that, they say, oh, well, it's not really about making decisions, it's more just about communicating and socializing risk. And so it's really important, I think, when we're evaluating safety activities of any sort, to be clear about what we think the benefit is, and then to honestly evaluate against that original claim that we were making. Once we've decided on that original claim, we can then, sure, accept a fallback claim and start evaluating that claim instead. And so I think let's start with the most positive thing you could say about risk matrices, Uh, You know, because it would be really good if we did have a tool that would help eliminate human irrationality and help us make better decisions. So let's genuinely ask that question: Do risk matrices help us when we're
0: trying to make decisions? Yep. So for our listeners to put themselves in that mindset for for this podcast, you, you're facing an unfamiliar situation. You genuinely don't know what to do, and you whip out your risk matrix. You look at what's in front of you. You apply it onto the criteria that you've established in your matrix, and you then are able to make a decision that should be better than if you didn't have that risk matrix to uh, to help you through that process. So. The paper that we've chosen to review today is a paper titled Further Thoughts on the Utility of Risk Matrices, the authors of the paper are David Ball and John Watt. At the time of the publication, Professor Ball was the director of the Centre for Decision Analysis and Risk Management at Middlesex University, and Professor Watt is now co-director of that centre. We'll also link in the show notes one of the key reference papers um, titled What's Wrong with Risk Matrices by Professor Tony Cox at the University of Colorado because we're able to use that paper to actually add some more science and or more empirical research behind the, uh, the main paper that we're talking about today. So Drew, do you want to tell us about what sort of paper this is? So
1: I have to admit that as academics, we don't make things easy for practitioners when we write papers about risk assessment. We write lots and lots of papers. And if you go searching for them, there are four main things that you're going to run into. The first type of paper presents some new technique for analyzing risk and there are these are very common papers, there are literally thousands of proposed risk assessment techniques. And the reason there are so many is that it's a common mistake for new safety researchers to think that they see some sort of gap in the literature that they could fill by proposing a new technique or by modifying an existing technique or automating an existing technique. And they do that without really understanding the risk assessment landscape for Typical example of this C1 PhD thesis by Dr. Andrew Ray many years ago. As I said, it's a very typical early researcher mistake. Uh, The second type of paper is a variation on the first. It doesn't just present a modified technique, but it applies that technique to make claims about real world risk. So these papers are even more common and they really pollute and dilute the literature. Because if you're looking for information about a particular risk or about a particular type of risk assessment, you're likely to run into one of these papers. And the cardinal rule there is that you can't validate a technique and use the technique at the same time. And so a paper that presents a new technique and claims to measure risk using that technique just doesn't make sense. The third type of paper seeks to provide information about some specific risk. And if done well, these should be really useful for practitioners. These give the scientific answers to questions like, how much should we really worry about a particular chemical? What are the most dangerous tools on construction sites? What's the most likely way to get injured by a train? Now, the challenge in reading those papers is just knowing whether the techniques that they've used to measure the risk are reasonable techniques. So that they're providing sort of genuine, real-world information about risk. The final type of paper is the sort that we're looking at today. And these are ones that are papers about how much you can trust risk assessment as a scientific or practical tool. Some of these are discussion papers, some of them are argument papers almost like maths papers, and others contain some collection and analysis of real-world data. Both the papers we're looking at today are mainly discussion papers and mathematical argument papers, as you can probably tell from the titles. Uh, But the further thoughts about risk matrices paper Actually includes a couple of interesting small experiments as well. So, David, do you want to jump in here? Have you looked at any sort of risk assessment stuff in your own research or in your own teaching?
0: Yeah, my um my research into the role of safety professionals in organisations came across a lot of examples of safety professional involvement in in risk assessment processes. It's, it's a very central process to to life as a safety practitioner, and um. It was really interesting because in my research, because I was observing an interview and interviewing, I was able to ask the question of the practitioners, not just what task are you doing, but why are you doing it? How are you doing it? Who's involved? What's the outcome? You know, why is it a priority? And it was really interesting in that I can't recall any of the discussions that I had with people about their involvement in risk assessment activities coming down to the driver being, we need to make a better decision here, or we need to use the risk matrix is going to help us make a better decision. Most of the reasons that the risk matrix was being used in a risk assessment process or just a risk assessment process more broadly was because of an administrative reason or a political reason. And I might give two examples just to make that that clear. The first was a team of safety practitioners that were involved in a risk assessment to justify a decision that a management team had already made. So the management team had made a decision to make a change to the operation. And then they asked the safety practitioner to, to do a risk assessment to confirm that our decision is okay. So that was that was one example. And the other example was a, a group of practitioners involved in a health risk assessment. And the central activity in that risk assessment process was, How can we make sure that this assessment or evaluation ends up in a particular box on the matrix so that we don't have to go through all of the process of reporting it to senior management and doing all of the extra work that comes with it landing in a particular box? So just two examples of how risk matrices, when they hit organizational life, they turn into things that are administrative or social or political, as well as instrumental in trying to improve decision-making.
1: And that certainly matches some of my own observations when I've been studying major accidents, is that people talk about risk assessments in hindsight as failed opportunities to understand the risk or to take action about the risk. But if you look at the risk assessments in context, very often they were being performed not as genuine decision-making activities, but in order to fill some social or political or regulatory function. But that aside, let's talk about the specific criticisms of risk matrices that come out of these papers. In each case, these are sort of logical arguments, but then they're backed up by various types of evidence or analysis. So the first big criticism uh, we'll label as the loss of information idea. And so this is mostly to do with the question about whether risk matrices put hazards into the right order. And the problem comes that risk matrices fundamentally contain less information in the matrix than we started with when we are putting information in. So let's sort of consider two examples of that. Let's say we've got a hazard where we very precisely know the likelihood and the consequence of the hazard. When we put that into a risk matrix, we put it into a broad category band, and that loses the precision that we had. And then let's look at the other extreme where the likelihood and consequence are not precisely known. Then there are these big bands of uncertainty And the risk matrix doesn't capture that uncertainty either. So in fact, what we know about a hazard could position it across multiple cells. And the risk matrix has no way to show that. It forces us to put the hazard into one particular cell. And even worse than these two problems, hazards don't just have one possible outcome with one possible likelihood. They've got a range of possible outcomes, each with their own likelihood. So to put the hazard into a risk matrix, We pick one outcome and the likelihood of that one outcome, and that can be really misleading. So, for example, if you're in a moderate speed single vehicle car crash, you will probably have minor injuries. You might also die, but death has a much lower likelihood. So, focusing on one of those two outcomes, the high probability of a minor injury or the low probability of death, neither of those gives you a good picture of the full risk of the car crash.
0: Yeah, and I think that's where risk matrices immediately fall down where you are trying to assess the likelihood of a consequence as opposed to potentially the likelihood of a particular event. So you're not getting, you're not getting much on the right hand side of the bow tie for those who are familiar with that kind of a technique through a, through a risk matrix. And I suppose our listeners probably are sitting there thinking, oh, but we've got numerous ways that our organizations attempt to deal with the, with the arbitrary or subjective nature of just picking a cell or picking a, picking a likelihood number or picking a consequence number. And I know that I've been in organisations that have tried everything from we expect you to assess both the most likely and the worst case, or we only want you to assess the worst credible case, or we start to try to skew our evaluation um, calculations to assess two times consequence plus likelihood to try to get an evaluation that's weighted towards the consequences. Andrew, do any of these types of methods that organisations employ, do they make up for any of the uncertainty that you've described?
1: Not really, because most of those still, they tell you a way of using the uncertainty, but they still have this fundamental problem that what you're representing on the matrix is less information than you started with. It's either less precision than you had, or it's not representing the full range of uncertainty because it's forcing you to make a decision that you might not have the information to have. And even worse, as we go through these next criticisms, every one of those fixes. And if you've got a particular fix in your own organisation, maybe keep that in mind. Every one of those fixes is going to make these problems that come next even worse.
0: Yeah, so the uh, so would the analogy be something like, Drew, the um, idea of putting a long technical report into a set of bullet points on a PowerPoint slide?
1: Yeah, I, I can see from the grin on your face, which doesn't come across the podcast, but you're just trying to trigger me off here. The number of major accidents where if you had to list under the true causes... Uh, we used PowerPoint in our risk assessment meeting. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what we're doing. Well, I it, think is, of, we're trying to reduce complexity in order to make decisions.
0: I can think of Columbia and I can also think of Nimrod just as starters without having any knowledge of disasters or anywhere near the knowledge of disasters that you have, Drew.
1: Yeah, Columbia is an accident caused by PowerPoint that predates the existence
0: of PowerPoint. So Drew, what what's the next big criticism? Okay, so the second big criticism
1: is technical consistency. Now. This is not a visual medium, but you're gonna have to bear with me for a moment. Risk matrices are supposed to be a sort of rough, semi-quantitative, semi-qualitative view of a real world that's actually quantitative. And so for the matrix to make sense, you really should be able to draw two lines through the matrix. One line separates the green from the yellow, and the other line separates the yellow from the red. You know, After all, that's the decision we're trying to make. And every point on the line should have the same amount of risk or otherwise it doesn't make sense. So on the risk matrix, these lines are bumpy because we've got boxes. And in the real world, those lines are curves. They're smooth curves. So when we take things from the quantitative real world into the semi-quantitative matrix, these curved lines are actually gonna be crossing through the middles of some boxes and the edges of other boxes. So in Cox's paper, he asked how much this matters And he suggested that there's a few basic consistency rules that everyone should be able to agree with. So, for example, the same curved line, the line of equal risk, shouldn't go through both green and red cells. Otherwise, you're saying that these things, one is unacceptable, one is acceptable, whereas actually they have the same level of risk. And for the same reason, there shouldn't be entire cells that appear on the wrong side of the line. Now, those are very simple rules. And you'd think that even within those rules, there'll be a lot of flexibility. But Cox did the maths for small matrices, and he was able to show that there's exactly one sensible coloring scheme for three by three matrices. There's exactly one sensible coloring scheme for four by four matrices. And for a five by five table, there's a massive two sensible color schemes, but both of those use only three colors. Any other possible coloring or red, green, and yellow is going to break the rules leading to gross inconsistencies. Now, when I read that, I blinked because I didn't actually know that, and I have to admit I had to go back and like check his maths and work it out. And it's the logic is really solid, but I, I consider myself a bit of an expert on risk assessment, and I didn't even know that these rules existed. How many real world matrices out there do you reckon actually follow Cox's colouring rules?
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I must admit I was in the same camp as you, Drew, in that I uh, I hadn't heard of that until today, and. So, so we can basically say if you've got a five by five or less matrix and you've got four colors, then you're breaking the rules. Um, you're breaking the mathematical rules. And, and I suppose I've, I see a lot of different configurations of colors on, on five by five matrices in a lot of different organizations. I've been involved in, in moving colors on risk matrices in, in organizations throughout my career without applying much science to that. Mainly what you're trying to do is just go, Oh, we've got too many. Too many risks in this red box for our high consequence, low likelihood things. So we might make that box orange instead of red because we don't want to do all the reporting and the assurance that's associated with all these things that might never happen. So I think there's a there's, there's a real red flag. You know, excuse the pun, but there's a real red flag here for organisations around their risk matrices to say, look, you know, just maybe just check whether the colours actually make sense based on based on the science. And uh, yeah, don't go moving stuff around unless you're prepared to have sort of grossly inconsistent uh, results in your risk assessments?
1: So this speaks directly to whether risk matrices are good for helping us make decisions. So the first criticism is that they reduce information and that reduces our ability to make good decisions. And the second criticism is that the technique can actually introduce inconsistencies. So it can directly lead to us making inconsistent decisions. The third big criticism is about how humans use the matrix. So this isn't a mathematical property, this is about human judgment. And that's what the experiments in the paper we're looking at this week were looking at. So in these experiments, the participants were risk management or occupational health and safety students. Normally, I'm pretty skeptical about student experiments. It's what a lot of psychology departments do, is they use students as their experimental subjects. And the result is we have all of these psychological phenomena that are really only true for You're white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, American psychology students. But in this case, the whole point of risk matrices is, A, they're supposed to be used by amateurs, and B, they're expected to be used by people who are doing risk management. And you'd expect risk management students to have at least an above average understanding of risk concepts. So I don't think that this is an unfair participation group. In the first task, 50 students were asked to place three fall from height scenarios onto a five by five matrix. The three scenarios were a railway platform, a public footpath at the top of a cliff, and a medieval, medieval bridge at a historical site. The students were given photos and information about each site. They were given a few minutes just to put them onto the matrix.
0: Yeah, so for our listeners, so if they can imagine the task that these people were given, they were given photograph, people walking across a bridge, given a matrix, given a bit of information and said, assess the risk of falling from height.
1: And this is something you can do in your own organisation just for fun, if you like, is grab your own organisation's risk matrix, grab a couple of hazards, take photos on your phone of what the hazards look like, write a short paragraph description, and just go around seeing where everyone puts those same hazards onto the same matrix, just to get a feel for how consistent these decisions are made in your own organisation. So that's the first task. In the second task, 21 students from the same group were given everything from the first task. So including all of the outputs, they knew what every single student had rated for every single hazard. They were asked to write an essay where they commented on those ratings and then assigned and justified their own new ratings. And this was set as an assessment task. So they had several weeks to complete it. They could go on the internet, they could look for extra information, anything they liked to do the task properly. So the results from this experiment showed that, firstly, for all three scenarios, the results were widely scattered. In fact, they were so scattered that when you look at the plots of the results, it's impossible to put the three hazards into any order. So, if this was a decision-making tool, which one of these hazards should we deal with first? The task obviously could not help you with that decision.
0: Yeah, I was quite surprised just how scattered those results were, and particularly on the well, particularly on both on both, but mainly on the on the likelihood. It was almost an even distribution across all all of the Five, I think, from memory, five cells on the matrix. So just as many people had almost put an answer in every one of those boxes, and that's a big, you know, that's that's a big range from this is not going to happen through to this is almost certain for you know people who had a similar level of capability and risk assessment looking at the same photograph with the same information.
1: Yeah, and it surprised me a bit because when you're doing undergraduate occupational health and safety training, and I presume the same is true for postgraduate. You're taught basic things about falls from heights. So, you know, what sort of the height above which you can expect some injuries to be unlikely, some injuries to be almost certain. And the people knew how high each of these things were. So at the very least, you'd expect them to just you know, pull out their notes or mentally remember their notes, get a rough, rough estimate of how high the bridge is, how high the fall is, and give that answer. That these people all with the same training all gave different answers.
0: And I think that's for a relatively simple issue. And if we extrapolate that out to where... Our organisations are also using some of these risk matrices to make more, more difficult decisions around technical systems like, you know, what is the, what's the risk of, a, of some corrosion on a particular piece of process piping or something like that? And, and when you start thinking about much more technical situations, then I start to worry even more about just what the range of answers are going to look like in those scenarios.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, the authors expected that things were going to get more consistent in the second task. Because now remember, the students have the opportunity to actually look up the answer. So they can go online, they can look up these particular sites, these particular locations. They can look for similar locations. They can look for typical evidence about typical fall risks. And many of the students did, in fact, do this research. So we've got their essays. We know what they cited. We know that they did go and get that evidence. And on average, the hazards were just as scattered. The only change between the two tasks was that on average, all of the hazards were shifted downwards in risk. Um, And one of the hazards shifted down a bit more than the other hazards, but all of the hazards were just as scattered. And so the authors drew three main findings from these experiments. The first one was that different assessors assign very different ratings to the same hazard. That was true in this experiment. That's consistent across all risk assessment research, even when we have very expert assessors. The second one, which I think is a little bit new, was that this scatter isn't due to lack of information. The scatter didn't change between when they had a few minutes to when they had the opportunity to get extra information. And the third one is, and this comes from the essays that they wrote, that the scatter isn't just a difference in estimation. It reflects deep underlying differences, not just about how they understood the hazards, but what they included as in scope and out of scope for the risk assessment, what mattered and didn't matter, and how they conceived and understood the very notion of risk—all of that varied between the people uh, doing this assessment.
0: There's some really interesting findings, uh, Drew. So let's let's talk about practical takeaways, and we've we've introduced a smattering of practical takeaways throughout uh, the podcast so far. But let's uh, let's start by let's start by reflecting on the fact that it's always worth us asking whether our decision tools are and ratings are actually helping us make better decisions. So I think our, our listeners could all reflect on just what decisions are being made off the information in your risk in your risk matrices or your risk assessments, are they actually informing decisions in real time? How how is the information being used? And then, you know, you can you can start to talk to people in the organization about how they're using the risk matrix and are they are they using it to make decisions? We've got a lot of tools in in safety and risk management within our organizations and it's worth knowing how those tools are being used and and how effective people find them to be.
1: So this really brought to mind, there's a common practice if someone's having difficulty making a decision where you ask them, okay, well, think about what matters to you in this decision. Why don't you pick some criteria and rate each of your options against those criteria? So a typical one is you're buying a new car. Okay, what's important to you? Is it value for money? Is it speed? Is it good looks? Is it how much it can carry? Is it how much it costs to maintain? let's write down each one of those and let's against each one of those options, let's rate each of the cars. And there've been experiments that have shown that doing that sort of formal defined process actually makes people less happy with their final decision, not more. When you come back a few weeks later and ask them, you know, do you regret your buying decision? They're more likely to say they regret it if they followed that careful process than if they just sort of informally used their own judgment. And that's what we need to be really careful of with any form of risk assessment, is things can look more methodical, but that doesn't necessarily mean even that it, if it's gonna make us make decisions that we're happy with, let alone decisions which are objectively better decisions.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important one, Drew, there. And also I think, um... The hidden uncertainty, the thing that you don't know, like you said, you, you see the information on the matrix and you hear what people are saying about the risk, but you just don't know what their underlying assumptions are. And so getting underneath that hidden uncertainty is, is really, really important. Drew, do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. So let's imagine that we did this assessment not with 50 students working independently, but we broke the students up into groups of three and we only picked one of those answers. In that one answer, there would probably be a clear ordering of the risk. And we'd go away thinking, okay, this team has made a decision, and the riskiest one is option B. The second riskiest is option A. Third riskiest is option C. And that's typically what we do in organisations: is we just do risk assessment for each problem once with one team, and it looks like we've got an answer. And it's only when you repeat the task over and over, in this case, getting 50 people doing it independently, that you see that that one answer isn't actually a clear ordering. It's just rolling the dice and picking from many, many, many possible orderings. It's just an arbitrary decision, not a careful one.
0: So what can people practically do then, Drew? What would you advise them? Would you advise people to have the same groups repeat risk assessments in their organisation? Would you invite in? Would you advise people to go and get multiple groups to assess the same risk and compare what they come up with? How, how would you approach this?
1: Honestly, all of those different things, all they do is reveal to you how uncertain your decision is. So doing that is certainly a good idea if you don't believe me. If you think that your risk assessment is definitive, you think it's doing a good job, then yes, go out and get multiple people to independently do the same risk assessment and see for yourself how random it is. But for a practical takeaway, the important thing is that once you accept that risk assessment is a bit arbitrary, once you accept that even the methodical things are just random preferences, then the thing to do is focus on risk reduction, don't focus on risk. So you should really only care about decision-making tools if the end result of using those tools is that you are better at risk reduction. And if they're taking up time and attention and they're taking away focus from what can we do to reduce this risk, then skip the risk assessment part of it. Skip using the risk matrix and jump straight to, we've got five hazards here, forget about what order they're in, For each one of these five hazards, what's the best thing we can do
0: for each one? Yeah, just thinking on the spot then, I think I can see a new risk matrix, which has just got two cells, uh, risk that we need to do something about and risk that we're happy that we don't have to do anything about. And uh, if it's in the box that says we need to do something about it, then get on and do something about it. And I think that's where, that was one of the things that came out of a lot of my research and advice that I give to a lot of safety professionals, which is, you know, make activities in your organisation that you're performing goal-directed risk reduction activities.
1: I love the idea of the two box matrix because I think it's going to make people really uncomfortable. People are going to really dread putting things into that box of things that we don't need to do anything more about. And you should be aware that that is essentially what you're doing when you use a risk matrix. Expanding it out to five by five cells and then deciding not to do anything about it is exactly the same as having two boxes and putting it in the box that says we're not going to do anything about it.
0: Yeah, it's a good place to put all of those uh, injuries where... You know, someone rolls their ankle getting out of a car on on a flat concrete road. You know, lots of those types of things that we uh, we consume organisational resources around, which are probably best in that box, which is uh, just don't do anything about it.
1: And if it is something serious, if it is something that we can and should do something about, then no risk matrix should be making us change our minds about that.
0: And I think to follow on from from that, um, Drew, that, that practical takeaway about, you know, using the risk matrix simply to know, you know, what you need to do something about and not getting too hung up over exactly which cell it sits in in the matrix is the risk matrix in your organization will have a lot of social social or at least a lot of political value in your organization. So I'm assuming that most of our listeners will have will be working in organizations. The organization will have a risk matrix and it will be central to a lot of reporting and and a lot of conversations about safety and, and risk in the organization. So, you know, it, it will be something that you'll use and, and be able to use to bring certain risks to the attention of certain people and processes in the organisation you know i know that i've i've been involved in doing that with all of all of the right intention of using the matrix and using particular cells in the matrix to highlight risks that were in my opinion not that well understood by the organisation and i I'm, I'm not encouraging our listeners to game the matrix but i'm encouraging our listeners to understand the social and political value of these tools and to use them to increase understanding about where safety um effort needs to be directed?
1: Well, one thing that I'm a fan of is drawing big circles that cover multiple boxes. It it takes a little bit of bravery to do that, but I think, honestly, that is what we're trying to represent and show, is that our current state of knowledge of this hazard is that it could be anywhere from acceptable to unacceptable. And if people want to move the box it's in, they're going to have to do something to reduce the size of that circle, which involves doing more investigation or doing more understanding about the risk in order to understand and control it, in order to put it into a box.
0: I really like that, Drew. I, I, I think from, from some of my reading last year when I was teaching the understanding risk subject in in the master's program at Griffith there around, you know, the uncertainty or the nature of uncertainty. So, you know, we need to understand likelihood and consequence and, you know, but more so we need to under, understand uncertainty. And by putting that that big circle or that big oval, depending on whether it's the likelihood or the consequence that you're most uncertain about, I really like that idea, Drew. I hadn't thought about that or heard of that idea before, but that would be something that I'd really advise our listeners to do. For risks that you're completely convinced are in one particular cell, put them in there, ones that you don't quite know, just put a big circle over about four or five cells and use that to prompt a discussion about, you know, how much information you have about that risk to make a decision.
1: So this week we asked the question, do risk matrices help us make better decisions? And the answer to that question is we can't say for sure But we've got three very good reasons to think that risk matrices actually make it harder to make good decisions. Friend of the pod, Todd Conklin, suggested that we ought to add a segment at the end of these podcasts and asking some questions. These might be things that you, our listeners, already know the answer to or where you've got some paper you'd like us to read or where you can point us to some things that we can cover on future shows. So something that I'd certainly like to know is whether people genuinely like risk matrices. So I know that lots of people use them, but do we use them because we see value or because we all feel that we have to? So maybe there are some people out there, maybe people even listening to the show, who find some benefit to risk matrices. There might be some benefit that we haven't thought about, or there might be some way of using risk matrices or fixing risk matrices that doesn't run into the problems that Paul Watt and Cox have pointed out in their two papers. So let us know if you use risk matrices and why is it that you use them? Is it by choice? And if so, what's what's the benefit that you see
0: in them? Yeah, I'd really like to know how organisations are using them to make decisions outside of just reporting and and collating information. Um, I don't see too much of it these days where it's actually used in real time decision making in a somewhat objective kind of way, where uh, where a group of people come together and 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 use it to facilitate the decision making process. So. If um if anyone's got examples of where their organisation's using it to facilitate the decision-making process, then I'd be really interested in that.
1: So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us on LinkedIn for a discussion about the episode or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.